Hello, and welcome to the May 2015 edition of the Tuesdays at APA DC podcast, linking communities together through innovative regional transportation planning. Metropolitan planning organizations, or MPOs, and regional planning councils are in the midst of a wave of innovative practices in how they work with communities to create long-range plans and how they work with local jurisdictions to implement land use, transportation, and development decisions that support regional outcomes. Speakers in this episode include Maria Zimmerman. Maria is a transportation expert providing planning and policy consulting services to local communities, governments, foundations, and national advocacy organizations. She brings almost 20 years of policy experience, including senior leadership positions with the federal government, the National Center for Transit-Oriented Development, and on Capitol Hill. Zimmerman specializes in collaborative efforts to update land use policies and align funding programs to support equitable development and integrate regional transportation, housing, and economic planning to support thriving and inclusive communities. Maria is also joined by Eric Zimmerman. Eric is responsible for the National Association of Regional Councils Transportation Portfolio, which includes managing priorities for member metropolitan planning organizations and regional transportation planning organizations. He works with members to refine policy priorities and recommendations for the Federal Surface Transportation Authorization and amplifies these messages to Congress and the administration. Zimmerman manages and executes NARC's Transportation Technical Assistance and Education Program, providing a suite of member outreach, training, and peer networking opportunities on transportation issues. Previously, he spent nearly a decade at Taxpayers for Common Sense. In this program, Maria Zimmerman shared highlights of recent work that she has conducted through her company, MZ Strategies, looking at some of the emerging best practices, including highlights from the innovative MPO guidebook published by Transportation for America. Specifically, what types of local assistance programs are being created to foster more livable communities? How are regional agencies incorporating social equity into their investment decisions? And what role are MPOs and regional planning agencies playing in cross-sector regional collaboratives? Eric Zimmerman focused on how MPOs and regional planners are innovating to provide better value to the communities they serve. Regional planners across the country are finding new ways to demonstrate their important role in transportation, economic development, and community well-being. Well, thank you. Um, it's great to be here, and thanks to Anna and Emily and Abigail and Jason with the APA staff who uh, invited me to join you tonight. So. Um, I am going to be talking uh, uh, about what is one of my favorite subjects, so hopefully I won't talk too long. But um, it's really been energizing for me in a lot of the work that I've been doing, especially over the last three years. I've uh, had my own consulting business, doing a lot of work with um, both coalitions and collaboratives from nonprofit as well as the public sector who are working on what we call innovative regional planning work. And uh, even before that, with various hats that I've had on, I always kind of gravitate towards this topic of regional planning. And I think in, in kind of having the invitation to talk tonight, I'm going to try to quickly touch on these four um, topics here that, to me, really kind of summarize what are some of the exciting trends that I see happening with regional planning and that linkage between the regional plan and the local implementation, which is what we want to talk about. Um, the first, very quickly, uh, just kind of, I think we're at an interesting moment in regionalism and regional planning. 
Um, secondly, it's certainly, uh, I think we're seeing a renewed focus at the local level that's being really tied to a regional vision. And to me, there's some great, great examples around the country with that. Um, third, at least in the work that I'm doing, it seems all around the country, people are coming to that issue of regional equity um, by different levers, often a transportation lever, which uh, I'll talk about briefly. And then since we're here in D.C., um, I never can pass up the chance of what I think we should be doing more of. So um, I did some work for uh, through MC Strategies last year for the Institute for Sustainable Communities. And the Institute has been doing a lot of work around the country with different regional collaboratives that are trying to organize and work on the issues of climate change, as well as sustainability. And it was a great opportunity to kind of step back. They wanted me to look at, you know, what's kind of been the experience of regionalism? Where are we at in this country? What are the lessons to learn for different regional climate collaboratives? And uh, kind of the big takeaway I had from looking at all this literature and dusting off old books and new books by Ethan Seltzer and Armando Carbonelli and other folks um, is that particularly here in the United States, regional planning is a really funky level of governance. Because on the one hand, a region, it just makes common sense in some ways. We have, you know, climate systems and um, regions of the country and cultural regions, uh, ecosystems that happen regionally. But when you get down to it, our governance structures really don't give much clout to the regional scale. So we've got the federal government that will yield power to the state government who will yield power to local governments, all of which have ripped the power out of the individual property rights and home rule. And then somewhere in this murky morass is the region. And so for the region, I think time and again, folks may have great ambitions, but we're really constrained by what authority and power is actually delegated or is appropriated through partnerships and good work and cajoling uh, and other tools. So I just mentioned that because for me, it's this constant overlay that we have these expectations of our regional uh, agencies, but in very few instances, do they actually have the authority and the full set of tools to do what they would like to do or need to do? And so it really is about this intergovernmental balance and these partnerships. And then again, at the same time, because we have all these layers of government in the United States, uh, there's also some fair criticism of, do we really need this opaque kind of regional level and what are they doing? And so I just think these dynamics play out a lot and actually are part of what's driving the innovation we're seeing uh, and also constraining it. So um, very quickly, I won't get into all the details of the slide, but uh, suffice it to say, in the early 1920s, kind of with the rise of metropolitan areas and urban sprawl starting to happen, we started to see kind of this organization around regional planning. Uh, and then we kind of have had some ebbs and flows at different points where the federal government really supported regionalism. Uh, a lot of it was very much systems focused. And we had the introduction of metropolitan planning organizations in the 60s, getting more empowered in the 70s and through subsequent transportation reauthorization bills. But again, most MPOs, as they will often tell you, are transportation agencies. Uh, and so we've had a lot of this regional work that's been on a system basis. And I think where we're at today, um, 
to me really does feel like a wonderful moment of regionalism because uh, we've had a kind of a burst of funding that happened at the federal level a few years ago with the Obama administration sustainable communities initiative we have what I refer to as integrated regionalism, where we're really seeing and embracing that we need to bring these systems together and integrate across transportation, housing, economic development, but also integrate vertically between the regional planning entities and those local implementers, be they the transit agencies or the local governments. So um, let's talk about getting local. Uh, last year, I had this great opportunity and a couple of super people who helped me um, write what's called the Innovative MPO Guidebook. And this was published by Transportation for America last December. It's available on their website. You can download it for free. They've been doing some great webinars to spotlight some of the MPOs who are um, part of the work. But what we were really trying to do was to kind of take the pulse of innovation that was happening around the country. And a few of the things that we focused on, and I'll touch about briefly here, are kind of this wave of local community programs that we're seeing happening around the country. Uh, MPOs doing a lot more to support local communities around technical assistance. And then getting a bit more creative with how they were using transportation funds, both to help bundle like projects, so they might be similar pedestrian or um, bike trail projects and recognizing those individual small-scale projects have a hard time moving up the regional pipeline. So thinking about opportunities to kind of bundle those together or even just creating set-asides specifically to support local programs and projects as well as uh, the Puget Sound Regional Council, I think they do a better job of this than almost anybody of having regional set-aside and local set-asides, set-asides for bridge maintenance, all these other things. And then finally, going beyond transportation and for having MPOs go beyond transportation into public health and housing and resiliency, uh, a lot of really exciting stuff there. So um, again, I encourage you, I'm not going to get into the details tonight on it, but feel free if you have questions. Um, we tried with the guidebook to look at both large MPOs and small MPOs, those in more rural areas as well as uh, larger metropolitan areas, and really to ground it with many real-world examples uh, and case studies. So um, I think the, the big takeaway from no matter where we looked at or what issue we were looking at, is that innovation seemed to really have most effect when it was started and grounded in a really visionary and inclusive long-range transportation plan. And uh, within the large transportation authorization bill, there are eight federally required planning factors, and all MPOs are required to consider those eight planning factors. And if you look at them, they basically are creating the leverage point to have almost any conversation you want to have. Uh, they talk about livability, quality of life, environmental quality, economic resiliency and vitality. And so for those MPOs that I think are really embracing that and using that as their hook, not just to talk about mobility and safety and freight issues, but really those issues within this broader context, um, I think that was really the seed of innovation. So um, we wanted to talk tonight in this discussion about uh, what's really happening at the local level. And I think, again, just a tremendous amount of innovation. 
people peer learning, taking ideas from one place, tweaking them, adapting them, adopting them in their region, and kind of these three big buckets. Uh, a lot of cool stuff. Some places it's called a livable community program. Some places it's called something else that sounds kind of the same but isn't really. Um, but the long story short is using transportation funds, primarily highway funds, to actually create these um, local planning support programs. So small grants to communities to actually try to get the land use right. So recognizing before that major transportation investment can happen, spend some of that time on stationary planning or corridor planning or overlay zoning or whatever might be the case. Uh, and we have a lot of different examples of that going on. Kind of taking that in the next step, um, some MPOs are actually, again, using some of those funds. We have this here actually in the Washington region uh, to provide some technical support. And it can range everything from making consultants available to work with local communities on specific local projects um, to doing kind of more aggressive and innovative work, workshops and the like. And then the last kind of bucket around local planning support programs is really implementation focused. Uh, that's when you start to talk about real money. So um, a little bit harder and I think some newer work around that. Um, but certainly some great examples. The Atlanta Regional um, Commission has a Livable Centers initiative that funds both the planning and the implementation. Kind of the idea with those planning support grants is that they will lead to projects that will show up on the tip uh, and be funded. And then in Minnesota, they also have a Livable Communities program, but it's not funded with transportation money. It's actually state money, and it allows them to do all kinds of other things that actually get into um, development and projects. So uh, I also want to shout out Lee Schoenaker. You should wave, Lee. So Lee is uh, shepherding a project that I'm really happy to work with him, and I know Alex Bond is also working with him. APA, stay tuned, little teaser. Um, this fall we're going to have a, a, a report coming out that's really looking at best practices on regional planning and have a whole chapter focused on livable community programs. So um, talking quickly here about equity, I mentioned I'm just really kind of amazed. Um, I just off of the APA conference and CNU and all these other things, it's like equity is really starting, I think, in a much more authentic way to be woven into these conversations. We still have a long way to go, but to me it feels um, noticeably different than even just five years ago. And I will give um, credit, sadly, to the kind of um, undeniable and really disturbing patterns we're seeing of uh, regional disparities, economic income and racial disparities that I think we're really seeing in profound ways, um, whether it's in Baltimore or Ferguson or just kind of uh, people working to make ends meet and how that plays itself out with the transportation system. But on a more positive note, <laughs> I would say I think a lot of it is also really a, a result of the HUD Regional Sustainable Community Grants that were uh, awarded in 2010-2011. Um, many, I think the majority of the larger regional planning agencies received a grant. And as a condition of doing that grant, um, they actually need to do a fair housing equity assessment, which was providing the data and mapping where were the racially concentrated areas of poverty today, 10 years ago, how did that relate to housing, to where 
schools and universities and colleges were, to where jobs were, to where the transportation network was, to what kind of transit service they were having. And I think actually mapping and having that data right now, we're kind of seeing the implications of that as different uh, grantees and regions are trying to figure out what, what do they do with that information, some of which you know, again, it's pretty shocking. And so um, if you go to the HUD website, they have a resource library and you can read some of these uh, assessments and then see in real time um, what different communities are trying to do. And I think kind of first and foremost, there was a move um, kind of not just public participation, but really thinking about engagement and how to bring people into the decision-making process. Uh, again, we're still, I think, at the very tip of the iceberg, but thinking about how we can bring underrepresented voices to actually be legitimate members of policy committees and technical committees and other groups that MPOs have. Uh, a lot of work around performance-based planning and, and struggles, frankly, over what are the right equity measures to have in, in those indicators, but I think there's some rich conversation um, a few places are beginning to weave equity within actual funding criteria. Last summer, the Met Council uh, and the MPO there in the Twin Cities actually has a new criteria in their regional solicitation for transportation projects that recognizes equity, as does Atlanta and the Bay Area and a few other places. And then um, more recently, really trying to think about, you know, just the face of um, the business and how we can do more to bring people of color and other uh, un underrepresented voices into process. So um, very quickly here to wrap up, uh, we're in D.C. and we're Infrastructure Week and we're having Infrastructure Week to talk about more money for infrastructure. Great. I'm all for that. However... I hope it's more money for good infrastructure projects. And we're only going to have good infrastructure projects if we have really good planning, especially at that regional level. And so while folks are going up to Capitol Hill and encouraging them to fund reauthorization and figure out how to fund it and what level to fund it, um, I think we have this huge little nugget we haven't done enough with, which is the proposal within the administration's Grow America Act that actually would fund a race to the top for MPOs and would provide more funding both for regional planning, but also to support that local implementation work. And I think and I hope that we here at APA can kind of get a lot more aggressive in saying that's a really good thing and we need to fund it. We also need more money to plan. The HUD program that I mentioned uh, has not been funded to since 2011. USDA used to fund regional planning. They don't fund it anymore. Uh, some years Tiger has money for planning. Some years Tiger doesn't have money for planning. So without a consistent um, base of planning support, again, I think we're missing some important opportunities, not just to build, but to build smartly. Uh, and on that, um, last week, the White House, through their Build America initiative, uh, had a half-day roundtable that was focused on um, infrastructure, finance, and pre-development, both planning, uh, engineering, architecture, how to kind of identify the financing. And they released a new report that I just wanted to flag here that includes both some sources of federal funding that you can actually use for pre-development planning and other activities, and some great case studies, again, of that integrated planning. So um, I'll wrap up with Jane Jacobs, the great urbanist, not such a great metropolitanist, but... Um, 
I think her her caution here or her snarky comment uh, again is it is hard to do this stuff at the regional level, and I think fundamentally why we have a rise in regionalism and regional planning is because the level of problems and their complexity and the challenges really is so unprecedented, uh, both the scale of them and the number of them, that I think it can only kind of lead you to that, ah, we need to work together moment. Thanks to the APA staff, of course, uh, for, for inviting me, and thank you all to, uh, for you all. Appreciate you all being here. Um, I, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to also point out that in addition to Chris Zimmerman, there's also Sam Zimmerman at the World Bank, and uh, Jayetta Hecker, who I think we all know her maiden name is actually Zimmerman, that. Uh, and Bob Dylan, of course. So, um, so my wife jokes that I should start a Facebook page for transportation-related Zimmermans. Maybe I'll do that. Uh, quick overview of, of where I'm headed tonight, talk to you a little bit about who we are, uh, hopefully most of you know who we are, but, um, and sort of talk about innovation from sort of the thinking side of it, what does it mean uh, uh, for organizations that are seeking to be innovative um, and, and, you know, sort of how they go about that. And it's sort of a, it's really a higher level consideration of what innovation means for, for regional planning. Um, you know, the T4 guidebook is, is rife with examples, if you haven't already seen it, of some of the great innovative examples that are going on across the country. So I kind of wanted to step above that a little bit and sort of talk about it from, from a slightly higher level than that. Um, if you don't know who we are, here's a little bit about us. Uh, you know, go to narc.org and learn more about us if you'd like to. Um, we obviously represent regional uh, regional planning organizations across the country, big, rural, um, urban, rural, um, and grow out of, uh, of collaboration between ACO and NLC 50 or so years ago when they decided regionalism was becoming something that was big enough outside of their scope a little bit and and, and form an arc in order to, to be working on those issues. So start with sort of what is innovation is, as I was sort of thinking about, you know, my discussion today, and, and I think it's sort of two levels. First, it's the thing itself, it's the innovation itself, you know, whether it's it's the scenario plan or, or, or whatever it is that, that is being used. And of course, these are all around. The Chief Report, again, is right for them. Lots of new ideas, lots of new approaches, lots of new tools are sort of bubbling up. But I think what's more important for the conversation tonight is, is that innovation is also the act of innovating. And um, I think that's really where, um, where regional planning organizations come into this. Um, it's this idea of thoughtful, intentional decisions to innovate whether that's reacting to a perceived community need, whether it's the result of enlightened leadership at the organization itself, or often because I think, uh, as Maria uh, alluded to, because of the evolving sense of what regional transportation planning actually is. Um, but this, there's also a little bit of a tension here. Because there's so many ideas, so many ways that you can go, um, no one organization can possibly pick up all of them and utilize all of them. So it's a matter of deciding sort of which uh, which are the, are, are the most important for a particular region. And I think this starts to highlight the value and role of regional planning organizations because they are in place to make thoughtful, intentional decisions about what goes on in their regions and with their communities and you know, sort of recognize which directions, which innovations are going to suit, suit their communities the best. 
But I wanted something that sort of graphically guides to innovation. There's not a whole lot to choose from, unfortunately. But uh, this is from Lund University, University Social Innovation, Innovation Center in Malmo, Sweden. Um, and, you know, I, I think though it's not specifically obviously about transportation, transportation planning is now sort of starting to encompass a lot wider uh, set of considerations anyway. So, you know, it sort of is socially, uh, is sort of integrated socially. You know, transportation planning um, is really doing a more thorough job considering its relationship to a wider range of social problems. And RPOs are really working to find new ways to generate new and novel ideas in order to deal with transportation, but also these, these wider issues. And hopefully they stand at the center of, of this transformation, um, you know, and as a result, we're seeing more sort of people-centered uh, transportation projects and planning, um, different level of innovative services, uh, hopefully greater sustainability across the various uh, uh, iterations of, of what that means as well. Um, and again, you know, another little tension here, as, M as MPOs are sort of working to transform their communities, they are themselves in the midst of a transformation that is turning them into, I think, in some cases, quite different organizations than maybe they were, you know, whatever period of time ago, 10 years ago, maybe five years ago. Even. So, you know, this led me to this sort of frame that the desire to innovate or the desire to appear innovative or the perceived need to innovate or even the requirement to innovate sort of drives and is driven by some, I think, very powerful and fundamental questions about, uh, about these organizations and really can result in a sort of a fundamental reconsideration of what these organizations are. So the first question uh, is, you know, the first couple get, get sort of, what do you do and how do you do it, right? I mean, that's like sort of the basic questions that you ask about, about any organization or any pursuit. So, you know, starting with what do you do? What is your purpose? Why do you exist? What is it that you perceive that you should be doing? Um, you know, if you're what, is that you're there to you know, to plan to meet the federal requirement and, and that's it at the end of the day, well, then you're probably not going to be particularly innovative or, or embrace a whole lot of innovative concepts. But if you're what is sort of a more uh, inclusive of a broader way of thinking about regionalism and linking communities and how transportation fits into the wider social fabric, then obviously you're going to be more, I think, more accepting of these and you're going to probably already be integrating them in, in some substantial way already. Um, and, you know, to step back for a second, as I look at my members, I got to tell you, I don't see a single one that's doing just the minimum. I mean, that's just really not the, 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 what these organizations are doing. They're all seeking to do the best that they can do for the communities in which they they operate, and it sort of highlights uh, again. There's a sort of this theme of tensions that run throughout this sort of idea of innovation, right? That there's a, a vast difference between being told you have to exist because the law says so and actually existing so that you're doing something productive for, for the community. I mean, if you're just there doing the transportation planning, I don't think that the, the community is going to say, oh, well, glad we have them around. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's doing more with what you have, I think. So then the second question is, how do you do what you do? You know, if, if you just post public notices and hope that folks show up for a meeting, that's one thing, or, or are you putting out, are you finding new and, and sort of innovative ways to bring the public uh, into the into the fold? Um, you know, are you hoping that federal dollars will continue to increase into the future? Not very smart if you are. Or do you consider new sources of funding, new, new ways to stretch those dollars that you are receiving 
you know, are you planning as they did in the 50s, 70s, 90s, whatever it is, or are you considering transportation in this broader context uh, as the central feature of economically, cultural, uh, culturally, and opportunity-driven uh, region? So I did want to use one example here um, that I'm quite familiar with. Um, as part of the, the Sustainable Communities Initiative, um, Salt Lake City, Sacramento, Kansas City, uh, their COGS all uh, did uh, some extensive scenario planning work. And they all came away with um, what ended up being a couple of different tools that were developed in this process. But, you know, that process and the utilization of those tools has really fundamentally altered their view of how they do what they do. I, I think they would go so far as to say they, they, wouldn't, they don't operate the same way now that they did before they had these, these scenario planning tools in place. That's a fundamental shifting of how they, how they, they do what they do. Um, and, and I think it's really exciting, and it shows how, what innovation does uh, as it's implemented. So a few other considerations are going through some of the H's and W's that you know, we all learned uh, make up good journalism. So the question is, who are you doing it for? You know, who is this for? Who's at the table? Who's involved from the public? Who do you perceive you are serving? Who do you actually serve? Those are all actually kind of hard questions. But, and then uh, also, who's included in the process organizationally? You know, is it just transportation planners? Are you bringing in your economic development uh, professionals? Are you bringing in folks uh, that are concerned about the environment, things like that? And, and as, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, transportation really is becoming more, I think, it's becoming more people-centric. Um, I sat in a, in a windowless room at DOT for about a full day um, uh, talking about connectivity. Um, and, you know, if you can walk on one of those meetings with, like, one aha moment, then you're doing pretty good. Now, I want to point out the bar is a little lower. We're only here for an hour. So you may even get, like, a quarter of an aha moment that we do good. But, um, and we walked away, you know, and, and one thing that somebody pointed out was that this idea of connectivity, this new way of thinking about the way that we're doing transportation is about putting people at the center instead of facilities. You know, it used to be, well, we need the interstate, so it goes wherever the interstate needs to go. It doesn't matter what it does, you know, to the folks that are living there. Now I think there's been there's starting to be a shift um, in in that in, in that approach, um, and I think in some small way, and I'm I'm not a historian on this. Maria probably can speak to this better than I could, but I think some of that is actually an outgrowth of regionalism and of the creation of MDOs because they came in the wake of some of the plowing through neighborhoods that was done when the interstate highway system went in or some other other highways went in. So um, you know, this actually may be some of the outgrowth. And I was going to skip where, but then it struck me that that sort of gets at the heart of, of some of this, because the where is sort of an innovation into itself. Obviously, we're talking about metro areas. 80% of Americans live there. Uh, they're growing like crazy. Uh, above that, we're, we're talking about regions, which, you know, granted, I come from the National Association of Regional Councils. We think regionals, regionalism is where it's at. You know, that's where the thinking is going on that, that really is going to, is going to uh, bring these metro areas and continue these metro areas uh, uh, toward a better future. Um, and, and then the where even has taken on a new uh, complexity with the adaptation of mega regions, mega, mega regional thinking, which I think you know is 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 certainly interesting when it comes to freight congestion, climate and, uh, and adaptation, air pollution, these types of issues that really don't know any political boundaries whatsoever. So before I get to the why innovate, just a few extra stray thoughts that I thought I'd throw out. Um, on, on innovation itself. You know, we need to make sure that we're not chasing the bright, new, shiny thing because it's bright, new, and shiny that it's actually the best thing for the communities in which it's being integrated. Sometimes 
the best new ideas and old idea ideas like community connectedness opportunity you know those are those are really great ideas to be to be pursuing um, and certainly we have to be smart back to that idea of sort of thoughtful decision making we have to be smart about what we go after I mean all uh, my members a lot of you know all of you that you're planners you're you're looking to the future you're sort of predicting the future but there's no absolute to the future obviously we can't know what's coming and so sometimes you can grab onto something and you're just wrong you know and that's a little bit scary so innovation can be a little bit scary but it can also be scary I think or or uh, it can be a problem not to innovate at all I think there's an inherent risk there as well and then frankly there are there are constraints my members face constraints in the, the size of their staff the, the structure that they have their authority um, some some organizations that we represent are constrained intentionally. They are made to be a narrow, you know, consider a narrow set of issues and, and no more. Well, innovation is going to be much different for them than it is for for some for another organization. Um, it's expensive in time and money, as mentioned, and you know we also represent a lot of, uh, of, of we represent standalone MPOs, but we also represent a lot of councils of governments. Well, councils of governments have this beautiful built-in feature where they are intended to. Think of all of these things together, whether it be housing, whether it be economic development, you know, a, a whole range of issues. So they're already sort of ahead of the game in the sense that they're, they've been thinking about these things in totality for, for a long time. Um, you know, and then as I pointed out, the risks. Being an innovator can be risky, but failing to innovate can be risky as well. So now we get to the why. So why innovate? Um, I think because it helps better serve or not only because, but when and if it better serves the process and the people these organizations are created and intended to serve. Why innovate? Because I think that regional planning organizations play a really crucial and vital role in the communities where they exist. And they really just can't allow themselves to be ignored. Um, they do the public outreach, they're operating in growing measures that are an essential part of our economy. Um, planning is a vital underpinning to all of that. So these organizations need to be uh, important in the places that they're operating. Um, why innovate? Because funding is constrained, and, and I don't just say that because it helps stretch dollars, although that is can be part of innovation. I say that because in this, you know, is, if my one takeaway is anything, it's that these organizations are doing their very best to prove to the communities in which they operate that they are valuable, that that they go beyond the mandate that they're handed by the federal government, and they provide value to the communities whether that's through data, through mapping, through a whole variety, a whole host of ways that they do that. But that's a crucial, crucial consideration to that. You know, when the dollars are getting parsed out, you never want to be the organization where anybody's considering not giving you that dollar. And if you're crucial and important in your community, you're going to get that dollar. Um, and then why innovate? Yeah, there we go. So this is about the sales pitch that you, that you need to do as an organization. And then finally, why innovate? And sometimes it's because you have to, and that kind of has has uh, two points. One is sometimes it's regulatory. Uh, right now, there's federal performance rules that are playing themselves through the process, as I'm sure all of you are aware. Um, and that's going to fundamentally change the way that MPOs operate. There's really no two ways about that. Um, and so sometimes you're forced to innovate. But um, I'll close with an example, uh, with one last example. And this is of the Atlanta Regional Commission um, in Georgia. And sometimes you innovate because your focus just shifts. The way that you do things just becomes different than it was, you know, before you started down a certain path. So I know that 
they're fundamentally reconsidering the way that they do their long-range transportation planning because there are so many other factors that they are so heavily focused on, especially economics, um, you know, but a whole host of things that are so core now to what they do that they have to plan differently than they did before they kind of took all those things so heavily. So sometimes you innovate, um, you know, just because because you're a different organization than you were five years ago or ten years ago or, or, or before you started down a certain path. So um, that's what I had. Thank you very much. I, I look forward to the Q&A. Good stuff from the Zimmerman team up there. Uh, Art Gazzetti from APTA. My question is sort of a, a basic one, and that's the regions that have consolidated their governments, uh, Indianapolis and Louisville come to mind, perhaps there are more than that. Uh, does that lead to a better region, uh, you know, region, or does that not necessarily have any effect on good regional planning? What, what is the sort of any, any case study experience from uh, consolidating governments and regions, regions and the impact that might have? I'll offer my two cents, and Eric from NARC, you probably have some good thoughts on this too. Um, I feel like trying to find the recipe for good regionalism is like the lost grail or something. Like, like you can't find it. There doesn't seem to be one thing that fits for every place. So I, I definitely think having way too many cooks in the kitchen makes it a big challenge to do good regionalism. But then, you know, I think the Bay Area often held up as like a great example of really, you know, innovative MPO, good regional planning. Well, they have like, what is it, our 24 transit agencies, and they have ABEG and MTC. I mean, they've got like all these different players swirling around. Um, so I don't think it's just the consolidation piece. But I think whether it's a formal consolidation or an informal mechanism for like really intentional collaboration, I think that that does actually make a difference. Um, being able to share information, being able to have common stakeholders, to be able to have some consistent politi political leadership that can help to carry those messages at multiple boards that they might be sitting at. Uh, I think those things are all really important, but I don't think it's the, you know, the holy grail of, of getting that um, that recipe right. I like I like to joke that when I, you know, every member they're all like snowflakes. Each one is its own you know, sort of precious thing, different than all of the others. And it really, I mean, it's literally true. That is just the facts. Um, so I do think that it is kind of hard to, you know put it into a big equation and say, what is the one thing that, that um, at the end of the day sort of spits out a, a better process? I do think, you know, it has been successful in some of the places where it's been tried. Um, and I do know, for example, you know, since, since you know, Louisville jumps across the, the river and, 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 you know, it's a, it's a by-state situation, they've done an amazing job 
um, on a bi-state regional level, um, you know, understanding that everybody, you know, if the region wins, that everybody wins. Well, I don't know. Unfortunately, I, I do not know if that came, at the, you know, before they consolidated or not, but that is certainly the way that, that they're thinking about it there. Um, you know, so they've certainly embraced the, the regional concept wholly, and, and I think it has, you know, tremendous value and upside for them. So, um, you know, I, I don't have any specific example or, or case study uh, uh, backing, but I will say that, that um, it certainly could be a factor, could be um, something that, that does result in better in better collaboration. perspective on the opportunity of uh, uh, joint development programs between the public and the private sector related to trans-oriented development project as a funding source for the actual transportation project? So there, there's definitely a lot of research and discussion on this question of, of joint development and the potential for value capture to help fund the transportation projects, um, and certainly something even within the recently revised federal guidance for new capital investment transit projects, encouraging transit agencies to do that. Um, I think the jury is a little too soon to tell, or maybe it's you know, half out, half in, or whatever, to the extent that that's really going to be a legitimate way to fund transit right now. Um, there are some examples, you know, even here in the D.C. area in Arlington, where they are able to use value capture to fund stationary improvements or the Potomac Yard station that they're looking at um, as part of a value capture mechanism. If we're looking at the entire transit network, I think I'm a little less optimistic that we're going to do that. But I do think um, we're certainly seeing transit agencies and local governments trying to be a lot more um, innovative with asking that value question as a way to fund all kinds of infrastructure. And thinking about joint development in potential public-private partnerships is yet another um, kind of iteration of that. I think, again, uh, like other kinds of P3s, there are questions about the land, who owns the land, do you lease back the land, how do you maintain that transit nexus to ensure, um, you know, are there other community benefits that should be part of it, or is it really just about generating value, you know, the most value can, you could possibly get, and there's been uh, evolution by transit agencies and regions in even thinking about what are their transit-oriented development policies. Uh, we've seen that again here in WMATA, where it kind of started by, you know, a revenue generator, and that was really a big focus, and then running into NIMBY concerns of people saying, well, hold on, you know, we don't necessarily want that huge, uh, dense, not very well-designed project in our neighborhood, and so it changes, I think like Eric was saying, the conversation is fundamentally shifting, but we certainly have many more transit agencies now that have actual joint development policies and programs, and even some MPOs that are also developing joint development policies. So not a, yes, here's the here's what's happening, but there's a lot of innovation going on with that. Hi, uh, Brian again with Living Cities. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit about um, some of the implementation funds. Um, have you seen that where they're in place in a few places, 
um, it actually helped demonstrate the value of regionalism and helped make more regionalism happen? Does that, does that seem yet? That's a great question. And living cities, we want you to fund implementation, so I'm inclined to just say yes, but I won't. Um, I, I think, actually, yes, that it is uh, yielding some success. Um, Atlanta, sorry, we've mentioned it a few times here, but the Regional Commission with their um, Livable Transit Centers or Livable Centers Initiative, uh, they've done a really good job of cataloging what has been funded with that program and that they have, you know, they can show you of the planning grants that they made that then led to implementation grants that are good, successful projects that also now have other communities saying, well, we want to get implementation funding and we'll play by these rules and do what you're saying we need to do to get the good, smart, integrated planning. So I think you're seeing that yield on itself. I think there's also other regions that are looking to kind of learn from and copy each other, which to me, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery or indicator that it's hopefully working. Um, I think the big experiment I'm curious about is in the Bay Area, where given um, SB 375, the climate legislation in California, they've like completely revamped the whole playbook of saying, you know, rather than having a series of individual implementation funding pots, we're, you know, going to say, here's the formula that we want the counties to abide by. That's having them look at affordable housing, having them look at transportation. I think it's flawed because it doesn't include jobs, but that's just me. Um, but it's then giving the transportation money to implement that based on kind of these outcomes that they're wanting to see in the formula piece. So to me, that's like really taking the lid off of the transportation implementation stuff. So we'll, I'm curious to see what comes out of that because we often see they test something there in the Bay Area and then others kind of modify it and try to test it where they are. But, um, but yeah, I do think we're seeing some good implementation stuff. Um, I think, uh, as you pointed out, in Atlanta, uh, it certainly seems to have uh, resulted in, in some good uh, in some good results, and uh, so it will be interesting to see how, how other uh, entities and how how we're able to sort of spread that as a, 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 a methodology or, or, or a way of, of doing business to other organizations around the country. So it'll be, it'll be good to see see how that spreads. You know, I, can just add, I think actually the bike stuff is probably where you're seeing that the most, where these small implementation grants to improve the bicycling network is actually being replicated and expanded in regions. And then we are seeing, you know, uh, uh, the Bicycle League and others have been documented kind of the impacts on both the transportation system, but also public health and economic impact and, and other things. So. Rhea, I'm going to put you in a spot. Let's assume in 2016 that either with a Republican administration, let's say it's Bush, who happens to turn out to be moderate, or he has some people who are moderate, or it's a Clinton administration, and they're sort of moderate also. In other words, you don't have this deadlock we've got right now. In addition to funding the HUD Regional Sustainable Planning Program, EPA program, what are some of the, and let's say the Congress is halfway decent, we can agree. <laughs> okay, listen. What are some of the things that you would see happening 
16, 17, 18, in terms of at least the federal government? What are some of the things you might see happen? I do think we've started something with both uh, a more place-based focus uh, in the current administration, and I would really like to see that not only continue, but um, get even stronger in terms of, in my fantasy world, if we could say to a community, here's the outcomes that we want you to try to attain and have those be kind of cross-agency, cross-disciplinary, and say, we don't care so much what pot of funding you're going to use to do that. So if, if you can figure out how to cobble together the federal programs, we would work with you and give you, we need Congress, the you know, happy Congress here, to, to give you some kind of a waiver or you know, innovative, expedited pilot or something so that you literally could bundle different federal program funds and not have to adhere by 24 different federal oversight, regulatory, reporting, deadline. Well, you know, if you've been there, you know what that's like, and it's just a horrible process. So that would be my first wish list, is if we could say, these are the outcomes we want. We want to support place-based mechanisms to do that. If you can come up with a good plan and if you've identified funding sources, we would actually work with you to figure out how to navigate and um, make sense out of those, those different federal requirements. Uh, and then I think the second thing to me, I'm a farm girl from Minnesota, I'm really saddened that we don't have more planning support for USDA because USDA their money to, when I was at HUD, it was crazy. It was like, they could build anything with that money. Um, and it was just kind of like up to the state directors. And I, again, just know from my community, like you're so understaffed, under capacity, huge challenges. It's kind of wacky to me that they don't have more planning support. So that's a little dream I guess I'd have. Uh, my dreams maybe are a little, uh, little less optimistic, but, um, you know, one thing that we're pushing for is is uh, just a shift, a little bit of a shift um, in, in prioritizing uh, local decision-making. Um, you know, we sort of saw a shift away from that uh, in MAP 21, potentially significant shift away, so that, you know, we've really de-emphasized, especially smaller metro areas, but but even, even some of the larger metro areas where we could have seen significant growth. So, Real growth in, in, in dollars making it down to the ground and, and, you know, ideally dollars that actually matter. So, so, you know, with some real obligation authority to, to actually spend it would be, would be a nice start. That's something that, that we've certainly been working on. Um, you know, again, not in a, exactly in a dream world, sort of hopefully we get that done even, you know, even in, under current constraints. But, um, you know, and then, um, it, it, I'm very interested to see, um, how, performance plays out, whether that's under any kind of administration. I, I think there's, you know, as things are starting to come together and these and, and, and the conversations are getting deeper about how MPOs and states are going to work together, for example, you know, there's some real opportunity here um, if if we continue to move in the right direction, if we continue to provide some, some, some resources to make sure that these conversations happen in the best way that they can, I do think 
it, it almost kind of goes together with the what are you trying, you know, what achieve this aim and we'll sort of let you fund it how you want to fund it. Well, part of that is implementing, I think, the performance piece well. So hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll modify it, we'll change it where it needs to be changed, but hopefully we'll continue down a good path, you know, like I said, with resources behind it that I really think can, can help transform, you know, you know, as because the vertical integration, I think, is key. I mean, it's not just, you know, we're not just thinking local, we're not just thinking NPO, we're not just thinking it's, you know, this, this new paradigm says they all have to work together. It all has to work together. And so under that, a scenario where, you know, you might look at outcomes as, as, as the, the sort of ultimate aim, um, I think this could play a huge role in, 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 in something like that. Great. I think we have time for two more questions. And if there aren't any, I guess we'll give our speakers a chance for some closing comments. Uh, thanks so much for having me here tonight. Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, I'm a, a newbie to, to this job. I'm not a planner by trade, so um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to share even uh, to share my thoughts with you. Um, and you know, I, I really appreciate um, this issue and the topic uh, being raised. I think this is is a fascinating area. Uh, there's still, uh, as evidenced by the fact that that uh, APA is working on a, on a paper on these, some of these innovations. I mean, I just think that there's a lot of energy um, behind these ideas, and it's going to be fascinating to see how they play out in, in the coming years. Yeah, I would just echo that. Thanks for coming out, and I look forward to hearing from you when hopefully we move to wine, because I, I do think, like, the, the peer learning, this is really a time of innovation, and I think it's it's funny. I think about when I started my transportation career in graduate school, and it was very much like, here's the way we do transportation planning, and here's the way we do engineering, and here's the input in and output out. And it, it was like kind of like, okay, if you can just like figure out the right coding, you got it solved. And I didn't like that. And so I actually like that it feels much more now like, we don't know where the money's coming from. We don't know what we're dealing about. There's all these unknown things. And so it really does require us to, you know, either in spite of or because of these challenges to innovate and think about those questions you're asking. And I love Rob Puente's. I was love his quote about now that we're out of money, it's time to think. And so I just think that's a really cool place to be in. So I would like some money. <laughs> Thanks again to Maria and Eric Zimmerman for participating in this episode of Tuesdays at APA. You can find information about past and future Tuesdays at APA programs, as well as listen to previous podcasts at planning.org slash Tuesdays at APA. Thanks for listening.